Before we start this podcast, we would like to take the opportunity to mention that we now have a Patreon page where you can help to support, evolve and continue these compassionate conversations. Please visit patreon.com slash voce dialogues for more information. Welcome everyone to the Voce Dialogues, Voices of Compassionate Evolution. I'm Chloe Goodchild, founder of The Naked Voice, and this is our new online community where we are exploring, deepening, and evolving our awareness of the transforming power of compassion. Enjoy these new dialogues with a wide range of artists, musicians, writers, and philosophers, social entrepreneurs, and sacred activists. They are all visionaries, transforming lives through the art of conscious creative expression with practices inspired by their own unique life experience. The Voce Dialogues are dedicated to the compassionate evolution of life on Earth. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to another Voce Dialogues. It's my great pleasure to be with Jenny Roditi. Hello, Jenny. Hello, Chloe. (laughs) (laughs) We go back a long way, don't we? We do. We're figuring it out. I think it's 90, isn't it? It's quite some time ago, yeah. 30 years. Exactly. Just both of us beginning our wild journeys with with the voice. So it's a great joy for me to be in this conversation with you. Voce Dialogues is delighted to have an exclusive music preview by the composer Jenny Roditi with a track that is soon to be released on all digital streaming platforms. It's called Orb. O-R-B, Orb. Jenny is singing an improvisation in what she describes as a mysterious, unspoken language of the now. Responding to the well-known Bach Prelude No. 1 in C major, played by the renowned concert pianist Cassie Yukawa McBurney. Orb was first created when Jenny and Cassie met in a hotel to celebrate a friend's birthday. Cassie invited Jenny to sing with her over the Bach, playing on the hotel's piano. It was such a positive experience for all present that the two decided to make it a recording. Theatre director Simon McBurney, Cassie's husband, heard several earlier live versions of the piece and, as you will hear after the music, he was prompted to comment on Jenny's singing style, seeing right to the heart of her musical intentions. So, before we go further into Jenny's amazing bio, here's the recording of Orb performed by Jenny Roditi and Cassie Yukawa McBurney. Oh 
Before we enter our Voce Dialogues further, just a quote from Simon McBurney, founder of the Complicité Theatre Company, in response to Jenny's and Cassie's amazing music. So Simon says, The work of Jenny Roditi is truly remarkable. All music speaks to the unconscious, but rarely do we find that conduit from the unconscious back into musical form. Jenny Roditi employing a sophisticated use of improvisation, a deep understanding of how listening becomes musical expression, and her own innate musicality make vocal work that is at once utterly original and completely timeless. It speaks of what is most ancient in all of us, and simultaneously what is most urgent, present and new. It is quite simply extraordinary and very, very beautiful. So those of you that don't know Jenny so well, Jenny is a composer in the avant-garde minimalist world and free improvisation influenced styles. And she's recently also become deeply connected to her Sephardic blood roots as a vocal improviser. She feels now that she's really making work that is in a post style style. Her output as a composer includes two full length chamber operas performed by the Lontano Ensemble, The first one's called The Descent of Inanna, about the Mesopotamian goddess Inanna and her descent into the netherworld. The second Lontano commission is Siddhartha, spirit child. And that tells of the story of Siddhartha who becomes the Buddha. It's a modern contemporary version of this story and quite compelling. Both operas employ singers from many vocal traditions, not only operatic. In 2012, Jenny founded vocal tai chi, a moving voice between heaven and earth. She offers amazing unclassified voice workshops for creative expression, therapeutic and spiritual healing. In 2015, Jenny founded the Improvisers Choir and they won the first prize in the non-classical battle of the bands. 
Jenny also runs the Open Choir. She created the Improvisers Choir, and they recently released their first double EP, Landmass, which is now also a music film version made in collaboration with filmmaker Sarah Posin. Landmass is a spontaneous vocal liturgy for the earth. Perfect timing. Other projects include the Essence Choir, founded in 2017, the Unchoir, which is a choir Jenny started in lockdown, and it works with, amongst other things, Ipera, A-I-P-E-R-A, which is a soulful song storytelling improvisation form to help us get through lockdown. Jenny also is director and singer of the Transpiring Band, and they offer perform shops as opposed to workshops. And you can join the band for about 40 minutes each and musicians can take their cues from what the participants bring to the session. Very spontaneous music making. Jenny is now currently offering a condensed version of these sessions and others are invited to join her one-woman band with a lyre and loopers and her voice. I mean, really exciting stuff. At the root of Jenny's work and life is the inspiration of her teachers, her spiritual teachers, of which Root Lama, Drupje Kime Rinpoche, and other teachers, including Trungpa Rinpoche, Pema Chedron, Jack Gornfield, Tara Brach, Richard Moss, Eckhart Tolle, Deepak Chopra, and Wendell Henkel. The Royal Music Association said of the Improvisers Choir after a concert in 2019, Jenny Roditi's Vocal Improvisation Choir was poignantly reaffirming of the power of the individual voice and the difference it can make as part of a collective, not least in the creative practice of collaborative music making, but as a societal allegory. My goodness, well, you and I certainly share a lot in common. And I love this whole notion of music and how it meets and how it impacts a social transformation and social change. And as you're aware, this particular dialogue is dedicated to the whole theme of compassion. So I'm really excited to be talking with you about your experience, your embodiment and experience and inspiration of compassion as it's shown up in your life. But first of all, how would you describe compassion it's such a big word I think for me it became the sort of the number one word as I got immersed in Tibetan Buddhism from 1985 onwards compassion and wisdom which Chimi Rinpoche always talked about as being two wings of a bird and that the bird could fly if it had both a wing of wisdom and a wing of compassion mm. And I think I've been learning how to mix those two things so that there's a balance. Mm. And, you know, I'm also aware when I was reading Trungpa Rinpoche in the 90s a lot that he spoke about this idiot compassion, which shook me to my foundations when I first read it, you know. Mm -hmm. But it was it was wise, you know. It was There's something about giving and giving and then <laughs> not having a sense of wisdom about it or you know, helping and helping and not having a sense of boundaries about it. Mm. Those lessons were mm. certainly part of my growing up process. Mm. I guess it's interesting, isn't it? Because 
there is a kind of notion of compassion that is more like a kind of service or almost has an edge of piety to it, you know, sort of false humility almost, that it can go in that kind of direction, you know, that you can get busy serving others, you know, with a certain kind of entitlement attached to it. But I can hear that that's not what you're speaking of. It's very much of that which is being with another, being with the sufferings of another, perhaps. Well, yes. I don't know if I'm a compassionate person (laughs) particularly, but my teacher certainly is, and, you know, he would say, suffering together. Mm. How did uh, Lama Drupche Chime, how did he come into your life? He was a photograph on a mantelpiece. (laughs) Before he became a real person, I was having a cup of tea with my Tai Chi teacher in, in Camden Town, Mm. must have been 1984, I think. Mm. And um, I went up to her mantelpiece and I said, who, who, who's that? <laughs> and um, the rest is history. Wow. And were you able to meet him directly? Yeah. Yeah. He's actually based in this country. Where's he based? Well, it's kind of secret, but oh. um, he's got a centre in near Saffron Walden called Marper House. Mm. Oh, my goodness, Jenny. Well, it's just... So great to be traveling back through time with you in a very timeless way. I love how your music is described as timeless as well. At once utterly original and completely timeless. I love that. How did music enter your life? Does it go right back to childhood? Did it just suddenly happen? Oh, well, I think it was there from pretty early on. I mean, I was playing piano from about the age of five and um, Mm. then a guitar arrived about the age of eight and I was writing music from the age of six. Mm. Great and were your parents in any way influential in that? I think there was some support and encouragement. My father was in the music business so you had a record company called Saga Records so we had a recording studio in the basement of our house in Mm. Hampstead so musicians were coming in and out and I could hear the sound coming up from the floor (laughs) below sometimes. So yeah, there was a piano in the house. Lovely, lovely. So it's almost like a sort of osmotic receiving of sounds from all kinds of directions. Yeah, I mean, I I think it was nice. I could go down into the studio and watch the recording sessions happening and Wow. And so I'm absolutely fascinated. You, you talk about that you're restoring this connection with your Sephardic blood roots mm. as a vocal improviser. And I'd love to hear you speak more about that. Well, I mean, it's my father's lineage. Mm-hmm. He actually grew up speaking Ladino, which is this very ancient Spanish Jewish language, which wow. his parents spoke. And they came across from Turkey and settled in Manchester, which is where he was born. And yes, I mean, I only really felt that I was connecting with that that kind of feeling of music in the last two or three years, really, because I've been more influenced by the Far Eastern, you know, been doing meditation and yoga and you know, working with you and the, the ragas and... Um, and Gilpati. Uh, and Gilpati, and then the Asian music circuit summer schools for many years. So I was going into that direction as well as, you know, being interested in contemporary classical and other things. But I also had this sort of longing, yearning, 
for something that was a bit more towards the Middle East, uh, more Arabic in feel and something which has a slightly different quality to it. Mm -hmm. And it started to appear in the voice. Yeah, more Persian, perhaps. Iraqi. Mm. I, I mean, if I did my DNA the other day, and <laughs> it's got quite a lot of Southern Mediterranean things going right down into East Africa and that sort of thing as well. So, wow. Um, yeah, wow. I think my father had quite a polymathic <laughs> heritage. <laughs> wow. I mean, it really brings home how you're kind of in some way perhaps drawing from yes ancestral roots and those roots themselves feeding your own present compositions and so on as well as your own spiritual life the food of the music for your mm -hmm. spiritual life yeah definitely and what does post style style mean Oh, it's a it's a wonderful little cheeky phrase that <laughs> the composer John Adams used. Ah, I love it. Love his work. Yeah. Yeah. When he's, you know, asked, you know, what style is your music in? You know, uh, he will say, oh, I, I think I'm writing in post style style now. You know, it's <laughs> kind of uh, it's the, the question that composers dread you know, is what style is your music in? It's very hard to answer that question, especially these days. Given the kind of multifaceted nature of your own ancestral roots and the directions that you've taken with the voice and with music in this lifetime, it's not surprising that you would require probably no final note on that. You don't want to have to mm. be typecast as any one particular style. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. And I have a memory of your working on the descent of Inanna in the yeah. early 90s. Mm -hmm. I think that's around about the time that you and I met each other. And I think at the same time I was reading Sylvia Pereira's book on the same incredible mm. myth. But what a courageous choice. You know, I mean, talk about compassion. Well, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because it, the woman whose house I was at having tea where I saw the Tai Chi teacher, where I saw the picture of Rinpoche on her mm. mantelpiece, mm. she is the woman that told me about the myth of Inanna. Uh -huh. So she's been a destiny individual in my life. There's <laughs> no doubt about that. Her name's Linda Hartley. I was I was searching around for the right narrative. I'd been given the commission, and I was, you know, where where do I look? So I I was up in um, Marpa House, and I was talking to Linda, and and this came up, you know. So because the descent of Inanna, I mean, you need to take that story as a kind of metaphor and a. Oh, goodness, an allegory for our time in terms of the restoration of the feminine very much as part of the restoration of compassion. Yeah, she's a huge character and sadly overlooked. Yes, absolutely. And what of Siddhartha, the spirit child? Well, that's a modern and an ancient story because the opera actually, I originally called it Spirit Child, just that. And then later on, I thought I'd need to put Siddhartha in the title as well so that people can understand the reference. Mm -hmm. And the spirit child is a reference to the 11th Panchen Lama, who in 1995 was kidnapped by the Chinese. He was only five years old, and he's the sort of head abbot, I suppose it is, of the Tashilungpo Monastery in India now, because they're obviously there. They're living there now, and they've got their monastery there. Mm -hmm. And I saw a documentary about the abduction of this little boy just as I was about to start writing the second opera. And it was absolutely gripping and the, the power of 
the way that they were looking for him using divinations and um, all sorts of extraordinary ancient practices was enchanting as well. So it took me into the world of that story, coupled with the fact I'd just seen Bertolucci's The Little Buddha, which is an interesting mix of old story myth and modern reincarnations and contemporary examples of little children being reincarnated and stuff. And it all seemed very kind of present that a mainstream filmmaker could make this film about little boys and girls being reincarnated you know, manifestations of great mm. teachers. And I got just swept up in the whole energy of all those references and things. And I started writing this piece and the opera is a result of that. It's called Start a Spirit Child and it is set both in the Chinese prison cell in 1995, as it were, and onwards, and also then in a sort of time capsule back to the life of Siddhartha. So it's the connection between the two through their spiritual lineage that allows the story to unfold of Siddhartha as told through the sort of timeless memories of the young child who's free within the cell of the Chinese you know, guard. So he's sort of got his own spiritual practices going on, even though he's only a child and, and inside this prison. Goodness. Yeah. Well, again, I mean, it has repercussions for, for our time too, for these times. I've just been hearing on the news about, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of children are being, you know, sent into homeless caravan parks and B&Bs and hotels to protect them from abusive households and so on. It's really quite alarming, isn't it? How much compassion is really so deeply called for in this time that our society is in this kind of extraordinary cooking pot of transformation as it always is of course with the same themes coming up over and over again and so to actually be manifesting an opera a musical theater piece that is demonstrating the collision between the innocence of childhood and the wisdom of the child within the context of the unconsciousness of our human adult world is, is really quite something, really extraordinary. And where was that performed? It was performed at a venue in Hackney called mm. The Ocean. Mm. Is that something we can still see? Is it something that you might perform again that would come back? I'm not sure. I've got aspects of the prelude well the whole prelude actually musically is on youtube although i don't have a visual on it except the text mm. but the rest is unavailable at the moment and how did the people come towards you for that how did you choose the actors or the singers for that particular project well auditions we were clear that we wanted a mix of operatic and non-operatic voices uh -huh. which is part of my my composing style Yes. I had, in fact, sort of already cherry-picked one or two people that I thought were perfect. And then for the rest of the cast, we did auditions. And, yeah, it's only a small cast. I think it was eight singers. Mm. Well, that makes it even more intense in a way, that intimate too. Yes. I mean, it was, I think it was a chamber opera. So I think there were 13 mm -hmm. musicians and eight singers. So, mm -hmm. yeah, something like that. That's absolutely incredible, Jenny. You didn't stop there. You know, you've, you've been involved in teaching vocal Tai Chi, which I love you describe as a voice unclassified workshop. So you're bringing your understanding or transmitting that. How did you develop that? How did that evolve really for you? 
Well, it's it's been a parallel journey mm. with the writing, the composing and the, mm. the research and the improvising. So doing some teaching work, really, I suppose, and facilitation. And I started off after the course I did with you and I saw Gilles Petit for a while. And then I ended up with this teacher called Paul Newham, who was just mm. starting voice movement therapy, mm. which was a real leap into the unknown, I would say, for for him and for everyone who <laughs> went on the course. And he was synthesizing his own experiences working with the Roy Hart Theatre. Wow, great. Yeah, and mm. with his own drama centre background and his prolific understanding of the voice and his interest in psychology and trying to bring all those things together. And he I think he had a partner in dance movement therapy at the time. And so there was a kind of a, a switch over to the idea that it could be also for the voice, not just for the body. And off began this course. And I was first student to qualify on it, actually. And yeah, then I just started seeing clients. And I did that one to one for 13 years or so. It was it was a hugely rich and important part of my development. Uh, and then I um, began to become aware more and more that I needed to bring myself as an artist more fully into the conversation, as it were, mm. um, with others in that kind of practice. And I sort of was going through a period of meditation and singing and trying to find out what is the song of meditation that I want to work with. And I was drawing on the raga that I'd been steeped in to some extent from working with uh, Sajan and Rajan Misra. Mm. Um, I think they're from northern India, working with the Kyal style of Indian singing and um, prior to that with Gilles Petit and with yourself. And so mm -hmm. that was all feeding into what is singing and meditation. And then I was just um, improvising and a friend of mine said, oh, it looks like a form of vocal Tai Chi. Uh -huh. uh, and um, we just went, aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you can do. In That's all you can do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that must be incredibly healing and beneficial for the people that were coming along. Because, I mean, both of you and I both know how many people think that they haven't got a voice, you know, when yeah. they show up and then they are sublimely surprised mm. Mm. discovering that they actually have a, an extraordinary voice. Yeah, what I, what I was keen to do was to bring in an element of performance and working with the microphone and backing tracks and making a little bit more of a non-acapella space and mm. um, uh, getting into the flow of improvisation. I think that was really what was at the centre of what was different. And the the emotional work that's inevitable when you're working with voice to some extent, but also the therapeutic work was there, but it was being rebalanced in my mind. Right. And my own presence as a, a singer yes. and a performer took a little bit of space in the vocal tai chi workshop whereas in the voice movement therapy sessions i was really more white coat and sort of invisible in service of the other person so i was sort of reframing how i wanted to be in the space and bring what i could bring i felt i wasn't bringing everything that i had to offer really yeah, because it is a dilemma, isn't it? You know, or it can be a dilemma. It certainly has been for me at different stages to sort of move from singing the Mother of God for John Tavener and then being with a group of individuals who are really right at the apparent beginning of their own inquiry into their own, the use of their voices for more than it being an everyday spoken facility. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, crossing those 
large gaps between mm. being professional and working in service of others is, yes. you know, we, we have to be agile with that to mm. some extent. I kind of wanted to be the fullness of Jenny's voice was missing mm. in, in voice movement therapy. It needed to come out to inspire others. That's what I realized. You yeah. know, I actually started Vocal Tai Chi as a practice by doing concerts. Mm. And then people came up to me and said, I want to do that. How can I learn to sing like that? Mm. So, you know, then it became a workshop. It was always going to be Jenny's sort of little micro genre of performance style. Yeah. Yeah. But then it, it sort of got sidetracked into being a workshop as well, which wasn't necessarily plan A. You know, plan A was that this was Jenny taking off her mask and just singing. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Very, very courageous too. And I mean, but for someone who had actually already composed The Descent of Inanna, <laughs> you certainly, you know, created the right conditions and context within which and from which to really rise and activate and action your own true, authentic voice. Thank you. Yeah. And then, so the improviser's choir, was that a kind of evolution from yeah, that. I think yeah. so, yeah. Ooh. I mean, it's, it's all sort of been like layer upon layer, yes. I guess. Yes. Deeper and deeper into the well, as it were. And yes, uh, after about three years of doing vocal tai chi, pretty much full time managing it, you know, <laughs> it takes a bit of time as well as actually doing it. The Improvisers Choir came out of an idea I had just what I was watching the club Inigal band, Note Inigal it's called, mm -hmm. which is uh, Peter Weigold and Martin Butler's band. Wow. And they are doing a kind of improvisational practice called conduction, which is the wow. conductor is improvising with them. So he's conducting them making music, but doesn't know what, you know, they're going to do. So he has a series of signals and those signals are indicating to the musicians the role that they should play like should they play an accompanying role or should they step forward as a soloist or should they bring in some harmony or should they do some rhythm so the conductor in conduction is signaling a composition if you uh -huh. like uh -huh. so it's kind of a living composition in the moment Brilliant. Absolutely love that. That's great. Because he is one of our great, great creative modern composers, isn't he, too? Peter Weigold, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And very inspiring. And I thought, I can do this with voices. And it just came to me in a flash when I was watching him one day. Brilliant. And so I actually went up to him at the end of the concert and I said, I can do this with voices. And he went, yes. I said, but how am I going to find the voices? And he heard audition. And I went, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> it all happened. I can't think of anything more compassionate than that to, to actually activate a context in which a choir is improvising. I just think that's brilliant because I've seen a couple of your amazing movies of the improvisers choir in action. Mm -hmm. It's very impressive. It's very inspiring to watch, you know, because they're very embodied in their own mm -hmm. sound. Uh, that's how it comes across. Mm. And so you really are empowering or the context, the actual style of, of, of expression and so on is very much encouraging a decentralized co-creative expression where no one's leading, no one's following. And get to that kind of stage of sort of symbiotic connection in that way. Uh-huh. Yes. It is a very live wire situation and yes, co-creative. And I think, yes, as that woman said in that review, 
societal allegory, which is where your point about how does it connect to society, mm. you know, I sort of felt, whoa, that's a relief that somebody's seen how this choir could could represent not only itself, but a way of being. Yes, yes. Beautiful, beautiful. Which takes us back to the, is it the singing Neanderthals? That whole understanding that we sang before we spoke originally <laughs> as human beings, which I love. I love that idea. And then also things like the singing revolution, the Estonian choir. I don't know whether you've had any connection with them. Do you know that story of how Estonia sang its country back into freedom? No, I don't know that story. It's a a fabulous account and it's a documentary and it's just called The Singing Revolution. It's brilliant. I think it took about 100 years. It was when Gorbachev came in and initiated Perestroika and that gave Estonia the first opportunity to really say, hey, we're not going to be decimated, raised to the ground anymore by external destructive forces coming in and oppressing our country. And because I believe they have one of the biggest folk libraries in Europe, singing was always allowed, even though, you know, like with Stalin, for example, they had this one mega music festival every year. And Stalin, I think it was Stalin, said to them, you can have your festival as long as you sing our, the lyrics about our politics. And so they agreed to do that, but they were using their melodies. And I always thought, wow, that's powerful. That's powerful. So that was what was really holding and grounding them at the absolute roots of their of their own social coherence and cohesion. And so this went on and on for quite some time until finally in the film, you'll see how they literally non-violently sing the opposing forces out of their country. It really is an absolute must to watch. But I'm thinking, you know, that the the work that you're doing really, it has that same quality within it of activating and empowering individuals to really truly find their voice as an allegory for what can actually literally happen. Yeah, yeah I felt some very powerful energies when I've been in the space with, with the choir and the audience. Mm. It is like, a chemistry that is, I can't even put words on it, but there's something, the spirit is moved, uh, the spirits are moving. <laughs> that Lovely. is for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jenny, it's just wonderful to have this conversation with you and to to share this work. There's just so much more, because I know that also there's so much more about your relationship with Roy Hart and the Wolfsons and that whole stream of activity, along with the chapter that you've written would you like just to complete with something about that? That would be incredible. Okay, yes. Mm-hmm. I'm in 2019 after i done a concert actually with the choir at Peter Weigold's club. There was a woman there called Helen Miners who is editor of Music Books and she invited me to write a chapter for her forthcoming publication with Routledge which is going to be I think in 22 now and the title of the book is going to be Women in Musical Leadership from the 19th Century to the Present Day. Wow. I've written a chapter for it. You certainly have and I've been lucky enough to read it and so we must all get that book as soon as it comes out. Say it again. Women in Musical Leadership from the 19th Century to the Present Day. That is really quite something isn't it because you can imagine a lot of people who don't have much knowledge of this going... Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I 
particularly the further back in time you go and i think it'll be a wonderful archival record oh, absolutely and a kind of backbone and a kind of undercurrent of what part music could possibly play in the compassionate evolution of our culture and of our world well that's part of music's function mm, big time well bless you for this initial dialogue my absolute pleasure and privilege chloe mm. Likewise, an absolute privilege to be in conversation with you about this and every joy and success with the evolving new projects coming towards you. Every blessing and thank you so much for your contribution to Women in Musical Leadership. (laughs) Thank you. God bless. Thank you.